Love will make you do crazy things. Well, stand by and watch a guy get assaulted with no repercussions. I like that they go, well, Chris Rock didn't press any charges. Why does Chris Rock have to press charges? And this is an industry that has been anti-masculine values for decades. And now suddenly they're like, rah, rah, rah. Maybe it's because you're trying to do something right. And for whatever reason, the devil got a hold of them. As a minority, do you feel like it makes us kind of look bad? People are saying that. Of course it does. No words of violence, too. No, they're not. No, they're not. No. No, they're not. Violence is violence. Words aren't violence. The first time I've ever seen the media cover black on black crime, so I'm actually yeah. <laughs> quite surprised by this. If Mel Gibson had done this. First of all, I seen a man stand up for his wife, which we don't see that much anymore. That made me have hope. Welcome to episode 17 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. I'm your host, Alan Woolen. I know a lot of people have talked about the Will Smith-Chris Rock incident at this year's Academy Awards ceremony, and I'm sure you've already heard a wide range of opinions about what happened that night and why, from some very smart people. Well, I'd like to weigh in on this subject through the lens of Thomas Sowell's 2005 classic book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. If you've never read this book, I can only say this to you. Buckle up. You are about to be exposed to some ideas you have for sure never heard before. If I were a modern-day college professor, I might be obligated at this time to provide a trigger warning to my listeners. The ideas you are about to hear might challenge your long-held beliefs about the way the world works. They might, heaven forbid, annoy or upset you. So be warned and be guided accordingly. If you don't think you can handle this type of experience, now would be a good time to switch off this podcast and turn on another, less challenging one. So let's take a look at what happened that fateful night at the Academy Awards. Chris Rock was on stage introducing the award for Best Documentary Film, and he was making some jokes to warm up the audience, as only Chris Rock can do. For whatever reason, he chose to poke fun at Jada Pinkett Smith, an actress in her own right, but also the wife of Will Smith. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. All right? That was a nice one. Okay. Chris Rock was making fun of the fact that Jada Pinkett is now bald and, for this reason, could star in the sequel to the 1997 film G.I. Jane, in which Demi Moore played a woman who shaved her head during basic training in the Army. Now, Jada Pinkett is not just bald by choice, apparently. Supposedly, she is suffering from a condition called alopecia, which is an autoimmune disorder which causes one's hair to fall out. Without getting into a debate about whether this joke was funny or whether it crossed the line and went too far in making fun of someone for something out of their control, let's look at what happened next. 
At first, Will Smith nervously laughed at the joke, as does the rest of the audience. As edgy humor often does, it makes people laugh and feel uncomfortable at the same time. Then suddenly, everything changes. Will Smith gets up out of his seat, confidently and stridently walks up on stage right towards Chris Rock. Smith stops just two feet from Rock, at which point he delivers a sucker slap to Rock's cheek, then turns around and struts back to his seat. Uh-oh, Richard! <laughs> oh, wow! Wow! Rock tries to retain his composure and incorporate this unexpected turn of events into his act, as any great performer will try to do. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. As if what he had just done didn't speak for itself, Will Smith felt compelled to add the following choice morsels of verbal emphasis to the point he was trying to make with his slap. Get my name out your fucking mouth! Wow, dude! Yes. It was a G.I. Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. I'm going to, okay? <laughs> I can, oh, okay. That was a greatest night in the history of television. Okay. Now that I've laid out the facts of the incident, let's think about what's really going on behind the scenes. And how does Thomas Sowell's book black rednecks, and white liberals help us to achieve a deeper understanding of this altercation. It seems to me fairly obvious what happened here. Smith felt insulted, disrespected, and dishonored in public by Rock making fun of Smith's wife. And Smith felt entitled and perhaps even driven to lash out with violence against his perceived offender. Is this pattern of behavior particular to black culture in America? Is it common for black men, and women for that matter, to direct physical violence against others when they feel they have been disrespected in some way? Is this a common feature of black ghetto culture which erupted that night between two members of the black elite? These are the questions which Sowell explores in depth in his book, black rednecks, and white liberals. Before I get to the main argument of the book, I want to point out that Sowell realizes that his arguments will be greeted with surprise by many readers. He says this in the preface to the book. Many of the facts cited here may be surprising or even startling to some readers, but they are not literally unknown to scholars. They have simply not been widely discussed in the media or even in academia. Just to make sure you don't think Sowell is putting forth these arguments on a whim or just offering out-of-the-blue conjecture, he then says this. In any event, these essays summarize the conclusions of more than a quarter of a century of my research on racial and cultural issues, as well as drawing on the work of innumerable other scholars around the world. So Sowell is preparing your mind to hear a hypothesis which he believes to be backed by solid evidence and therefore indisputably true, but which he expects will be met with considerable skepticism. Here goes. Sowell's main argument in Black Rednecks and White Liberals 
is that the current day black ghetto culture is actually a remnant of the white, redneck, and so-called cracker culture of the American South. And that this cracker culture was brought to the South by immigrants from very particular regions of England, Ireland, and Wales, which had been known for centuries to exhibit these cultural traits. Sowell says this, More is involved here than a mere parallel between blacks and southern whites. What is involved is a common subculture that goes back for centuries, which has encompassed everything from ways of talking to attitudes toward education, violence, and sex, and which originated not in the South, but in those parts of the British Isles from which white Southerners came. That culture long ago died out where it originated in Britain, while surviving in the American South. Then it largely died out among both white and black Southerners, while still surviving today in the poorest and worst of the urban black ghettos. Sowell devotes many pages of the book to demonstrating all the myriad ways that Southern whites differed culturally from Northern whites, and points out as well that Southerners were often discriminated against by Northerners because of the perceived inferiority of the former by the latter. Sowell says this, Southern whites not only spoke the English language in very different ways from whites in other regions, their churches, their roads, their homes, their music, their education, their food, and their sex lives were all sharply different from those of other whites. The history of this redneck or cracker culture is more than a curiosity. It has contemporary significance because of its influence on the economic and social evolution of vast numbers of people, millions of blacks and whites, and its continuing influence on the lives and deaths of a residual population in America's black ghettos, which has still not completely escaped from that culture. Sowell makes the astonishing and counterintuitive claim that most contemporary scholars get it completely wrong when they attribute the current-day differences between blacks and whites in America to the legacy of slavery. Sowell says this, it is perhaps understandable that the great overwhelming moral curse of slavery has presented a tempting causal explanation of the peculiar subculture of Southern whites, as well as that of blacks. Yet this same subculture had existed among Southern whites and their ancestors in those parts of the British Isles from which they came, long before they had ever seen a black slave. Sowell is making the argument that the distinct cultural differences between blacks and whites in modern-day America stem not from the effects of slavery, but rather from the fact that blacks had absorbed their culture from southern whites, and that these southern whites came from particular regions of the British Isles, which had very distinct cultural characteristics. Sowell makes these cultural characteristics explicit when he lists them here. The cultural values and social patterns prevalent among Southern whites included an aversion to work, proneness to violence, neglect of education, sexual promiscuity, improvidence, drunkenness, lack of entrepreneurship, reckless searches for excitement, lively music and dance, and a style of religious oratory marked by strident rhetoric, unbridled emotions, and flamboyant imagery. This oratorical style carried over into the political oratory of the region in both the Jim Crow era and the Civil Rights era, 
and has continued on into our own times among black politicians, preachers, and activists. Touchy pride, vanity, and boastful self-dramatization were also part of this redneck culture among people from regions of Britain where the civilization was the least developed. Remember, in this clip, Sowell is talking about white cracker culture here, not about blacks. Now, one of the cultural traits of white redneck cracker culture, which may be relevant here in our analysis of the Will Smith slap, is that which Sowell calls pride and violence. Sowell says this, Manliness and the forceful projection of that manliness to others, and advertising of one's willingness to fight and even to put one's life on the line, were at least plausible means of gaining whatever measure of security was possible in a lawless region and a violent time. If you've ever watched a prison movie, and I count Shawshank Redemption as one of my all-time favorites, you know the importance of projecting manliness and a willingness to fight as perhaps the only way of securing a modicum of security in a violent environment. The first night's the toughest, no doubt about it. They march you in naked as the day you were born, skin burning and half blind from that delousing shit they throw on you. And when they put you in that cell, when those bars slam home, that's when you know it's for real. Old life blown away in the blink of an eye. Nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it. Most new fish come close to madness the first night. Somebody always breaks down crying. Happens every time. The only question is, who's it going to be? It's as good a thing to bet on as any, I guess. I had my money on Andy Dufresne. Sowell gives us some key insights into the connection between pride and violence in this clip, which may help us to understand the Will Smith incident in a deeper context. Centuries before black pride became a fashionable phrase, there was cracker pride, and it was very much the same kind of pride. It was not pride in any particular achievement or set of behavioral standards or moral principles adhered to. It was instead a touchiness about anything that might be even remotely construed as a personal slight, much less an insult, combined with a willingness to erupt into violence over it. Wow, this really resonates with me. Was Will Smith demonstrating a, quote, touchiness about anything that might be even remotely construed as a personal slight? much less an insult, combined with a willingness to erupt into violence over it? Sowell gives many examples in the book of violence born out of perceived slights. Here's one which stuck in my mind. When an Englishman, tired of waiting for a southerner to start working on a house he had contracted to build, hired another man to do the job, the enraged southerner, who considered himself dishonored, vowed, Tomorrow morn I will come with men and twenty rifles, and I will have your life, or you shall have mine. In the vernacular of our later times, he had been dissed, and he was not going to stand for it, regardless of the consequences for himself or others. Southern whites were known for centuries back in their original homelands to engage in extreme violence, including the biting off of ears, the gouging out of eyes, the castration by hand, and even the murder of those who insulted one's honor. 
And as Sowell points out, it was not simply that isolated individuals engaged in such violent behavior, but that social approval was given to these extreme practices. Sowell says this. What is important in the pride and violence patterns among rednecks and crackers was not that particular people did particular things at particular times and places, nor is it necessary to attempt to quantify such behavior. What is crucial is that violence growing out of such pride had social approval. What's interesting about this social approval phenomenon here is that it is telling to note who in the general public signaled approval for Will Smith's violent outburst and who condemned it. Would it be a fair hypothesis to make that those who approved of Smith's slap have more of a kinship with white Southern cracker culture than those who condemned it? I'll leave it to you to answer that question for yourself from your own experience. Sowell points out that dueling among upper-class Americans was very common in the American South, but not so much in the North. Sowell says this, Editors of Southern newspapers became involved in duels so often that cartoonists depicted them with a pen in one hand and a dueling pistol in the other. Most duels arose not over substantive issues, but over words considered insulting. At lower social levels, Southern feuds such as that between the Hatfields and the McCoys, which began in a dispute over a pig and ultimately claimed more than 20 lives, became legendary. When Sowell says that most duels arose not over substantive issues, but over words considered insulting, this applies perfectly to the Smith and Rock situation. This Southern propensity towards violence exhibited itself in many bizarre practices, such as the extreme racing of river steamboats, which often ended in the explosion of one of the boats and the killing of hundreds of hapless passengers. Sowell also introduces us to the mostly unknown fact that most of the people lynched in the South prior to the Civil War were white. Sowell says this about lynching. The violence for which white Southerners became most lastingly notorious was lynching. Like other aspects of the redneck and cracker culture, it has often been attributed to race or slavery. In fact, however, most lynching victims in the antebellum South were white. Economic considerations alone would prevent a slave owner from lynching his own slave or tolerating anyone else's doing so. It was only after the Civil War that the emancipated blacks became the principal targets of lynching. But by then, Southern vigilante violence had been a tradition for more than a century in North America, and even longer back in the regions of Britain from which crackers and rednecks came, where retributive justice was often left in private hands. Even the burning cross of the Ku Klux Klan has been traced back to the fiery cross of Old Scotland, used by feuding clans. Is it possible to read a Sowell book without learning something which is not only completely new, but also the exact opposite of what you used to believe? I don't think so. Pride had yet another side to it. Among the definitions of a cracker in the Oxford Dictionary is a braggart, one who talks trash in today's vernacular, a wisecracker. More than mere wisecracks were involved, however. 
The pattern is one said by Professor McWhiney to go back to descriptions of ancient Celts as boasters and threateners and given to bombastic self-dramatization. Examples today come readily to mind, not only from ghetto life and gangster rap, but also from militant black leaders, spokesmen, or activists. What is painfully ironic is that such attitudes and behavior are projected today as aspects of a distinctive black identity, when in fact they are part of a centuries-old pattern among the whites in whose midst generations of blacks lived in the South. So will Ed's this point for emphasis. Again, all of this went back to a way of life in the turbulent regions of Britain from which white Southerners came. Nor is it hard to recognize in these attitudes clear parallels to the behavior and attitudes of ghetto gangs today, who kill over a look or a word or any action that can be construed as dissing them. So there you have it. Sowell makes the case that the phenomenon of pride and violence, which is a feature of today's black ghetto culture, has its roots, not in Africa, but in the rolling hills of Scotland and Wales. Was Will Smith slapping Chris Rock a manifestation and remnant of this cracker culture still haunting the black community today? Or was it just an isolated incident of one man letting his emotions get the best of him? Will Smith, Chris Rock, Thomas Sowell. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. In West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all shooting some b-ball outside of the school. When a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared and said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. I begged and pleaded with her day after day, but she packed my suitcase and sent me on my way. She gave me a kiss and then she gave me my ticket. I put my Walkman on and said, I might as well kick it. First class, yo, this is bad. Drinking orange juice out of a champagne glass. Is this what the people of Bel Air living like? Hmm, this might be alright. But wait, I hear the prissy bourgeois and all that. Is this the type of place that they just send this cool cat? I don't think so. I see when I get there. I hope they're prepared for the Prince of Bel Air. The plane landed and when I came out There was a dude look like a cop standing there with my name out I ain't trying to get arrested yet, I just got here I sprang with the quickness like lightning disappeared I whistled for a cab and when it came near The license plate said fresh and it had dice in the mirror If anything, I could say that this cab was rare But I thought, man, forget it, yo, home's the Bel Air I pulled up to the house about seven or eight And I yelled to the cabbie, yo home, smell you later Looked at my kingdom, I was finally there To sit on my throne as the Prince of Bel-Air
I'm Alan Wolin, and this has been episode 17 of the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Thanks for listening.